1: Welcome to Invest Talk, above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have as long as they're financial. 888 99 Charter is our number, 888 992
2: 4278. Justin. Nick from Long Island. Just
1: wanted
3: to uh, ask you guys kind of a general money slash real estate question, I guess. Out of curiosity, like, you know, in today's environment with higher interest rates, I just wanted you guys to talk a little bit on like HELOCs and cash out refinancing. And I was also curious, like, you know, if, if you were looking to create some freed up income to say purchase an investment property,
2: is there like any sense or any scenario where borrowing against a 401 or a 457 makes sense, especially if you have... 20, 25, 30 years left in your career to make that money up. So, just uh, wanted to shoot that your way. Get you guys' opinions. Thanks a lot. Love your show. Have a great night.
1: For, first, of all, I would never borrow against my retirement accounts. Uh, that they're made for retirement. You should invest them with that in mind, and you don't need to borrow. If you're borrowing money to invest, why don't you do this invest directly from there? Now you're hinting at well, maybe invest in real estate. You can invest in real estate in your 401k or 457. You can buy REITs, real estate investment trusts. I have no problem with that area. Right now, they're you know they're under they're under a lot of pressure, but this might be a good time to start gathering a little short list of REITs that you want. Okay, I, I'm thinking, you know, I like to buy things when they're on sale. Okay, so I think, that, I think real estate and certain real estate, but I still certain real estate. I like medical property REITs. I like warehouse storage, uh, com, uh, computer farm REITs. I like public storage REITs. I don't care for office REITs, a lot of other types of REITs because of the rising interest rates and the ever since COVID, people not going back to work to the office. i stay away from that area of real estate investment trusts. But others look attractive to me over long periods of time. So, no, don't take any money out of your 401k, IRA, whatever, to invest, invest directly from there. Leave the money alone. Okay, refinancing, taking money out of your house. Problem with that is hopefully you have a very low mortgage rate and I would not want to change that into a high mortgage rate. So I don't know if I would be borrowing against my house at this point. I'd wait for mortgage rates to come way down again. Um, and I think they'll come off their highs. I don't know if they'll go way down. Uh, I talked to my brother, a couple of my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws yesterday about they wanted, on my opinion, where I thought real estate was going to go because they are appraisers. They're real estate appraisers different parts of the country. And I told them I felt real estate actually is going to hold up fairly well, but it, the pricing is going to soften. And I think we've seen a peak in mortgage rates. I think that's going to soften. But I think real estate in itself, I think the activity will stay high, buying and selling I'm talking about, uh, simply because there's a shortage of, of existing homes. So I think real estate is going to be fine, not going to be you know go-go like it was in the – You know, in previous times, I'm just saying I don't think it's going to collapse or anything like that. I just think it'll weaken. I still think there would be a lot of activity. See, they're more interested in the activity because they're real estate appraisers. They want buying, selling, buying, selling. That's what they want because they get them more work out of it.
4: Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART.
2: Hey, Justin. Hey, Steve.
0: This is Mike from Flyer, long-time listener, couple-time caller. I had a quick question. I'm a dividend investor, and I was looking at the stock BCE. It's a Canadian telecommunications stock, and I do like it, but what I was reading online is that there is a tax on the dividends of 15%. Then I found another
2: little clip online that said if it's in a retirement account, such as a Roth IRA,
0: they actually don't take a dividend tax on that, Canada doesn't do the tax withholding on the dividend. I mean, I just wanted to know if you could clarify that for me. Thank you and have a great day.
5: All right. Yes, there are some what are called uh, foreign taxes that you have to pay when a foreign company is paying a, a tax to or a, a dividend to you. And there are some withholdings for that. And it depends on the country that you're. That, where that's coming from. It's coming from the UK or Canada or Germany or wherever. And so you definitely have to look into that. It does depend too if it's an IRA, a tax deferred account or not. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what it is for Canada. And if there is a difference in, in a 401k or an IRA, I know it is 15%. It's been 15% for a while. But understand that for everyone out there that when you're investing in a company that pays a dividend understand the tax implications whether that is you reporting it later and it being a qualified dividend or not if it's domestic company right if it's qualified or is it coming from a reit or a, a limited partnership then it's gonna be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate etc uh, or if it's a foreign com- company what is our tax tree with them that's always something to look up so I'm glad you pointed it out. I don't know what it is for the IRAs 401k's, frankly, with
1: Canada. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now.
3: Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter.
5: I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets and we only have an hour here. and, And sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things.
3: The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday.
5: Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get to the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that.
3: Subscribe anytime at
4: investtalk.com. listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments though 888-99 chart 888-99 chart and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
2: Hi, I'm calling in regards to a question on moving averages. I hear you guys talk about I wouldn't buy that stock until it's back to a 100-day moving average for example. So Looking at BS Corp, it's just now to a 100 day moving average on the daily chart, but on the four hour chart, it's to the 200 day moving average. So, which time frame is more important? Does that depend on what kind of company, or do you just pick one and stay with that? How would you look at that, and which one is more important? I hope that's clear. Thank you guys for all
5: the information. Well, the longer the time frame, the more important that moving average is. Now, if you're looking at different time frames, right, you talked about a daily moving average and then a weekly moving average, and that's what, in each chart, it's looking at that particular period. So if you have a 100-day moving average on a, and you have a daily chart, it's going to look at Sorry, 100-period moving average. on you know, a daily chart, you're looking at 100 days, the average price over the last 100 days. If you're looking at a weekly chart, that 100-period moving average is going to look at 100 weeks back and look at the the average price there. So the longer time period you're looking at, the more impactful it is. Now, VF Corp, the technicals are, are improving uh, pretty nicely. So that's kind of a near-term positive above the 100-day moving average for the first time really since... February, and it's now been above there for let's see, four, yeah, four out of the last five days. First, last time it's been there, geez, let's go all the way back. Uh, this is that's been a very good indicator of where uh, trend is for the stock. It hasn't been up four out of five days above the 100-day moving average since December of 2021, and that was when it was at $76 per share. Now we're at 20 So the technicals are certainly improving, and I like what you're looking at here and understanding that those technicals are shifting. The 100-day moving average is now roughly flat. Another indication that now that downtrend is abating, that momentum on the downside is abating. So I like what you're looking at now. I have to back that up with the fundamentals of VF VF Corp and their business and whether I, I, I think they can turn it around. Uh, but the technicals are certainly improving. But thanks for the call on moving averages. The
3: Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes.
5: I have a question for you
3: about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. I have a question about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance.
1: If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless, so don't
3: forget to call. Call Investor, eight 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 ninety nine chart I was just wondering, I, I took some profits back in December, January, February, and I've been sitting on maybe 30, 35% of my portfolio in cash and was just wondering, when do you think would be the best time to consider putting that back into the market? Should I be slowly doing that now? Should I wait till later in the summer? just whatever advice you can give me on that. I would appreciate
5: Thank you. Well, when to get back in the markets, uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's hard to time the market and this is why you don't just go all cash. And so many people are, are scarred by the financial crisis and COVID crisis and, and that volatility. And they let emotions drive their decision making. This is what we talk about all the time. And it's, you rarely want to take these black and white decisions of cash or all invested. Oftentimes, you want to keep a little bit of dry powder, sometimes a little higher than than, than most. Uh, a month ago, I was saying on air, you know, you, you probably want to be trimming positions. You want to be taking a little bit of profits. doesn't mean you go to cash because a modest pullback could be all that it is. And on that pullback, you hit support like we did just a, a few days ago, late last week. And you put a little bit more, a little, little bit of that cash to work. Not knowing whether that's the ultimate bottom. It very well could be very well could be, you don't know. It's all about the liquidity dynamics in the market. Are they going to continue to be modestly improving since they have since last fall or will the issuance of longer dated treasuries pull enough dollars out of the system to shrink liquidity more dramatically? We're likely to see that over the next couple of weeks. And those dynamics tend to feed on each other as well. Higher volatility begets higher volatility and vice versa. Higher volatility, bad for asset markets. Lower volatility, good for asset markets. So I think we are in a period where probably through next year, it's going to be relatively good for asset prices because we're going to be headed more towards looser monetary policy, better liquidity than we will tight policy. And you saw that you know, last year when interest rates moved up so dramatically. But since the fall, interest rates have been within a range. And we haven't had that strong of an uptrend. And that's kept liquidity pretty decent. And it will probably be in that trading range for a while until there's an understanding of what the long-term trajectory of inflation and monetary policy will be. There's a lot up in the air right now. On both of those fronts. But most likely, we're not, the, the Fed's not going to raise another, raise the Fed funds rate another 500 basis points over the next year or so, right? We just had that. Could they raise one more time? Maybe one more after that? Maybe, probably not, but maybe. And so the trends now are for looser policy. So are you going to wait for that ultimate, what is that ultimate bottom? It's about finding good opportunities. So I would say you've had a pullback. Put a little money to work. Pull out your watch list. Find what makes sense for you, your risk tolerance level, the economic backdrop that we're in, the sectors that are outperforming. So, I can't tell you exact timing. That's up to you. And you have to pay attention to liquidity and don't get freaked out by the market pulling back. That's opportunity for you.
1: You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you 888 99 chart, beginning our experience. We're here to answer your question.
4: Now is a good time to call Invest Talk.
1: A warrant is a right to buy shares of stocks at a certain price.
4: What's
2: your question? Would you recommend to put all my funds right away in the market? Or you recommend dollar cost average?
4: Got a question for Steve or Justin? 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an Encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
2: Hi, Steve and Justin. This is uh, Jay from Salt Lake City. First of all, great show. Love it. Um, I had a question. So I hear about young people saying buy treasuries, so that way when the interest rates go down, you can get the capital appreciation. However, I buy them through, like, Treasury Direct. You can't do it that way. But I heard you can call your brokerage, for example, like TD Ameritrade, and ask to buy treasuries. If that's true, would that give you the ability to sell them and capture the capital appreciation if interest rates go down? Anyways,
6: I
1: hope that made sense. Uh, Thanks again for the show. Have a good one. Quick answer is yes. That is absolutely true. You can buy treasuries on the open market anytime, and you can buy them through your brokerage firm. Okay. Uh, and I do it all the time. So, yeah. Or you can buy other bonds too, uh, which will give you higher returns. But if interest rates go down, all all bond values will go up. All bond values will go up. So, yeah. Now, I like buying bonds that hold them maturity myself. I don't really buy them for the capital appreciation, but I think you're going to have an opportunity to have capital appreciation because I think we're in at or near the peak of interest rates i would not be surprised if we're at the peak the only danger we have is is inflation going to kick back up or not and frankly uh, oil is worrying me because it's pretty high and i think we're going to have some more demand china is going to start spending money on their economy to kickstart it again and that will you know eventually put pressure on oil prices higher well, we are we are doing pretty well already economically, uh, so oil prices, uh, you know, we should be drilling for more oil because it's at a high price, and uh, I think it would be smart as an economy to do that.
3: This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial, where they describe their services as independent thinking, shared success. And this philosophy is why KPP Financial can be of great value to investors. KPP principals Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are committed to unbiased guidance. They don't upsell clients into expensive and questionable investments. Instead, Steve and Justin provide honest opinions and proven strategies based on the individual's current portfolio and risk tolerance. Working with KPP Financial... You can be assured of consistent dedication toward the goal of helping you achieve financial freedom. You can get things started with a phone call or a simple message through investtalk.com. The Invest Talk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with your questions. 888 99 Chart.
7: Going to Roth IRA, what is referred to as the maximum that you can put in there a year, depending on your age, is 6,500. Are you allowed to put more than that in? Or is that like the the maximum amount you can write off? What are the details on that? I'm a little confused on it. Thank you. Bye.
5: Well, yeah, that's the maximum that you can put in to a Roth IRA. Now, remember, Roth IRA, it's not a tax write-off. That is post-tax money. Now, you aren't taxed in the future On any money you take out, you can take out your contributions at any time after the five-year mark of that Roth IRA being established. If I'm going to say, should I open, should you open a Roth or a regular IRA? I would say Roth uh, more times than not. Uh, But once again, it's not a tax write-off now. Now, if you're in a high tax bracket. It makes sense to try to get the write-off in an IRA, but there are limits to that. There are some tax limits on Roth contributions as well as the deductibility of traditional IRA contributions, so you want to talk to your CPA about that and where you land there. Uh, So, uh, yeah, hope that that helps. Uh, You can make non-tax deductible traditional IRA contributions, but... Once again, it's non-tax deductible, so you have to keep track of that, and that can be uh, quite complex, okay? So, hope that answered your questions.
2: Hey, Stephen, Justin, it's Kevin calling from La Crescenta, California. I'm trying to get your thoughts about owning a vacation property. I've been looking in California, somewhere drivable, either down in San Diego or in the Oxnard area, and I'm having trouble seeing how it makes sense financially. Uh, from a financial standpoint to buy a property um, to put all that money in the down payment end up paying uh, 7 or 8% on a loan and versus when I could just take all that money and invest it even if I was conserv- very conservative in treasuries and get 4 to 5% uh, and use that money to take some nice vacations trying to get your thoughts on vacation properties. Thank you uh, again for always hosting a great show. Well, I do
1: like property in Southern California. It always has a cycle, and interest rates are pretty high right now, and prices are pretty high right now, so it's very difficult in this environment that we're in to find a bargain. They're just, it's just, bargains are far and few between these days here in Southern California. Even though there is a shortage of properties, they are still pretty darn expensive, I would wait for a recession. If you're gonna buy properties, California has a cycle about every 10 to 15 years up and down cycle for properties. And we're pretty much at the peak. This is not the time, in my opinion, to buy property. Wait till everybody doesn't like property and we're in a deep recession. Then you're talking, okay, buy some property. Especially when you can get a pretty good return on your money, you know, in a very safe way with, you know, 5 and 6% new treasuries kind of exposure. So I don't know. You know, I think I'm getting five point something on a treasury, you know, short-term treasury money market fund even. So, but just be careful. I, I think this is not a good time to do it. I do like the idea though. I like the concept of properties as part of a portfolio. I do. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now.
5: Dot com, hackerone.com.
4: You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99Chart, 888 99Chart, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
5: Let's go to Pennsylvania and talk to Sergio. He wants to talk about equity portfolio allocations.
7: Thanks for taking my call. I have a general question about equity portfolio allocation. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in knowing uh, what is the percentage that you think should go to international emerging uh, emerging markets or developed markets? Assuming that, for instance, I get a domestic index fund S&P or down, uh, you know, kind of a long term investing. So if I want to just an index fund of like a domestic and then what is the percentage of uh, international? And and the international should be emerging markets or developed markets or both. You know, if I get an ETF, you know, I can research an ETF for those.
5: Well, I think right now there's certainly much better values elsewhere, but there also is probably higher risk than there has been in a while. You obviously have a war in Eastern Europe. You have geopolitical concerns with China and the potential fallout from their demographic bust that's happening in China. And so I would lean, frankly, on the developed markets. That's where there is a lot of, of good value. Emerging markets, I think there are some select good emerging markets, but I would probably, the problem in my mind is that so much of the emerging market indexes, shall you say, are China heavy. And so if you can avoid China and still be exposed to emerging markets, I do like that area as well because the demographics in many of those emerging markets are actually good. Okay. Like Vietnam, for example. Uh, what do you think, Luke? Uh,
6: 20%, 15%? Offhand, I wouldn't, I can't say an exact percentage, but mm-hmm. generally the way I look at it is take a look at the MSCI All Country World Index, which invests globally, Mm -hmm. and take a look at the uh, weights there between international, U.S., and emerging markets. And that's a good starting point. Keep in mind, uh, you have have said that you uh, have a higher risk tolerance, that you're more aggressive. So maybe you want to tilt slightly towards emerging markets, international markets, away from the U.S. But generally speaking, for an ordinary investor, I would say that take a look at the All-Country World Index, see how globally assets are allocated, and that's a great starting point for how you should allocate your portfolio. Yeah, right now, they're 30 38%. Yeah, it's going to be China-heavy. 38% in China, yeah. I do know that a lot of ETFs and mutual funds from a risk mitigation standpoint are going to country cap, yep. um, and China is the number one country that ends up hitting that country cap. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. but yeah, like I said, this is it's a great reference point for where you should start, and then you can make adjustments accordingly based on risk, based on- uh, Yeah, I think
5: tolerance. 30 35% of your equity portfolio, I have no problem with that. I would focus a lot on the particular countries, yep. uh, countries that are- Commodity heavy, I think those will do better in this inflationary environment. I think that's number one, and try to and those countries in Asia that will pick up a lot of the business from China as companies diversify their supply chains away from uh, you know a communist regime in China uh, and that potential fallout eventually. I think that those are the countries that are going to do the best over the next uh, decade or two.
3: This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial. Where principals and InvestTalk hosts, Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are independent financial advisors. For clients, they are fiduciaries. Steve and Justin have a duty and a commitment to always place the interests of their clients ahead of the firm. This is different from the way many other organizations operate. And one way you can realize the benefit of an association with KPP Financial is to know that KPP practices parallel investing. This means that the personal investment accounts of KPP principals participate with client investments at equal prices and percentages. It's an important difference. You can learn more anytime at investtalk.com or reach out to Steve Peasley and Justin Klein by emailing or calling their Irvine, California office. The Invest Talk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with questions. 888-99-CHART.
5: Let's go up to Berkeley and talk with Bill. And you have a question. Uh, yeah, What is your question, Bill? It,
2: it's actually more of a comment. So okay. I was reading a white paper by Charlie Munger the other mm-hmm. day. So Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's uh, partner mm-hmm. and one of the richest men in the world. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this paper uh, and had a couple of points. Uh, He said you should not have a diversified portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, And his reasoning there was, now, a company like yours could, of course, do that. But he felt an individual really couldn't keep adequate track if they had 100 stocks or more. Mm -hmm. And your job Mm -hmm. is to really watch the stocks that you have. The mm-hmm. other thing he said was you can't get the big bumps. You can't get the real rich plays when you have that many stocks because some are going to be dragging others down. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the 10 stocks or whatever it is that they have billions of dollars in, you know they're really high-performing stocks, and not everybody can, can do that. But I'm just wondering uh, – what you think of that philosophy.
5: I definitely agree with it to to a degree. I I see very often many people owning 60, 70, 80, 100 different positions. And you're right, it is impossible, especially for an individual, to keep an eye on, on that and really understand the, all the businesses that they own. And so right. it, now when it comes to the statistics around diversification, you only need about 25 to 30 different names to be well diversified. So to us, that's kind of what we stay in for most of our portfolios. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of tools that allow us to kind of watch them all and keep them uh, keep uh, on top. But I, I don't think any individual right. should have more than that 30, 35-ish at max. Uh, now, if you're yeah. buying a fund or anything like that and you're just kind of setting it, forget it, that, that's something different. But what he's talking about is obviously individual names and it is important to be able to keep an eye on them, understand the catalysts that could drive each one of them higher or lower and stay on top of the business what climate, about economic climate, etc. What
2: was that? Uh, pardon me. Uh, what do, What do you think about his comment about how you get the best performance with a uh, a smaller portfolio, less diversified.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's some truth to that. Once again, it's smaller isn't always better, but it can be better if you are more concentrated in names that you really understand and you're you're focused on. Doesn't mean you can't right. do well with a thirty position portfolio, but it is very difficult to do very well with a hundred position portfolio, for example, because. Just too spread out and not one individual name is going to make a huge impact on the portfolio overall. So less is, is more, um, but too few is also uh, too risky because if you have 10% of your portfolio in one position and you're wrong, which everybody's wrong. Guess what? Charlie Munger's been wrong. Warren Buffett's been wrong. They've all been wrong. They've had had bad positions uh, and and big losses in, in certain parts of the market. It happens. Um, and so there's definitely a risk versus reward there that you have to balance out. But uh, I do see is the biggest mistake is having far too many positions by the for the average individual. Thanks for the call, Bill. All right, let's keep things moving. The answer another live call. This one is from Dan in Walnut Creek, California, asking about precious metal miners.
2: Hi there, um, Justin and Luke. Hope you guys are doing okay today. We are. You hey, um, Thank you. So I've got, I'm, yeah, I've, I've got. Um, I'm invested in four different miners: mm-hmm. um, SSRM, um, SR, SSR Mining, WPM, mm-hmm. Wheaton Precious Metals, AEM, Agnico mm-hmm. Eagle, and um, Nem Newmont mm-hmm. uh, Corp. And they're all doing pretty well, except for Newmont. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, um, just in general would you what are your thoughts around um uh, precious metal miners at this point and um in particular um, what's your thoughts on new mods? Uh I, th-
5: I think they those are all quality miners and uh, they have pulled back since may on uh, a bit of a stronger dollar higher interest rates but if you look at general They're going to move with gold. If gold remains in an uptrend, which it has been an uptrend, now going on, let's see, it broke out back in the fall of last year. That's when the gold really moved uh, up nicely, broke out. It has pulled back, like I said, over the last few months, but it hasn't broken any major support. It's still making a series of higher highs and higher lows. And commodity prices are actually broadly moving up. So uh, I think this is, uh, so far, it is a pullback to be buying. So I wouldn't be um, selling any any of them uh, quickly. But Newmont is underperforming and needs to kind of gain some traction and start to catch up. Otherwise, uh, it's probably time to move to one that is performing, but certainly is. uh, It would be on the chopping block um, uh, for us. All right, thanks for the call.
7: I have a question that I've always kind of wondered and I've been trying to piece together an answer to. My question is about bond yield, or um, mostly uh, like 10-year, 30-year treasury yield. How do yields correspond to price? How do they correspond to demand? And typically, like, why will they go down? Why will they go up? And how does that correspond to the market and to the price of bonds? And also, how does the, into all of that, because I've read or heard that they can buy bonds. I've heard that there's a private bond market and then a, like an auction. So I just wonder if you could clarify that for me and kind of put it in context as far as how it affects the economy and how it might affect things like uh, the stock market. All right, guys, uh, appreciate it very much. Keep doing what you're doing, thanks.
5: Well, prevailing yields in the market certainly in the bond market, certainly affects a lot of other types of asset prices because that's, uh, for example, the 10-year treasury is is the index for a lot of other types of uh, borrowings in the economy, such as mortgages. Now, the Fed typically, in the Fed funds rate market, they're fec- affecting short-term rates. So they have a pretty direct impact on the short end of the yield curve. They have an indirect impact on the long end based on messaging, sometimes based on balance sheets expansion or contraction. Right now they're doing QT, so that's balance sheet contraction. Um, So there is some minor impact there, but ultimately the long end, the 10-year, the 30-year, that's based on supply and demand. One of the reasons I think interest rates have been up over the past uh, or or the 10-year has been up over the past couple months is because now, after the debt ceiling debate, the Treasury can issue a lot more, uh, a lot more supply, and as supply comes on market, that means prices go down, bond yields go up. Remember, it's inverse to prices on bonds are inverse to the bond yields. Um, anything I'm missing, Luke?
6: No, I think that, I think the main point is. Bond yields and bond prices are inversely related. So when you see yields rising, that's typically an indication of bonds being sold off. People are trying to dispose of these bonds. And typically, when people dispose of something, they sell something. It's usually for less than they're originally asking for. It will drive prices down. Yields will go up. You can think of a yield as how much you're going to earn as a percentage based upon what you're purchasing something for and what the par value of it is at at expiration. The par value being, the notional value of that bond. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, oftentimes bonds will trade below par. Par is 100. And you can buy a bond at say 90. It's still going to pay you the original coupon rate, say 4%, whatever that, that is when it was issued. And that's going to be part of your return, that 4%, plus the appreciation over time from 90 to 100 when the bond matures. That could be a month from now, six months from now, 10 years, 30 years from now, there's bonds that are... Could be never if that your could, company
6: goes bankrupt, yeah, but you yeah. don't have to worry yeah. about that for you.
5: Exactly. Um, so hopefully they gave you a broad overview of the bond market.
4: A quick reminder, if there's a term that you hear mentioned on the program, but you're unclear about what it means or you have a question about it, we want you to ask. It's very likely that you're not the only one with that same question. 888-99-CHART.
0: Hey, all big fans of the
2: show. I just have a quick question. I'm an 18-year-old investor looking to get into the market. I have about $500 to spend and was looking where, where to start.
0: Thought I'd come to you guys.
2: Thanks again for the show.
1: Okay, very good question. And, you know, I'm so happy that you're doing it at 18 because the sooner you start, the more you're going to make. Trust me on this. You will. Okay, so you have $500. What I would do is probably open up a discount brokerage account, maybe at Probably Schwab, because TD is being bought by Schwab, and Schwab is our custodian. But you don't have to be Schwab; it could be any discount brokerage firm, E Trade, uh, you know, any one of those. I want you to open up a individual account, and then I want you to take the five hundred dollars and buy it with an exchange traded fund of either the S and P five hundred or maybe the NASDAQ 100. Now, they, the symbol for the S&P 500 is SPY, and the NASDAQ is QQQ. Maybe divide the money up, maybe 300 of the SP, SPY and $200 in the QQQ. Then I want you to continually to add to those positions over time. You'll do very well if I can just convince you to do it you'll do very well. Over time, you'll do very well. Don't panic when the market goes down. Markets go down. What you want to do when it goes down, it put more money in the market, not less, more. I wish I could convince people to do that. been doing this a long time, and that's how it works. America is not going to disappear. No matter how or what they say, we're not going to disappear. So don't worry about that. I've heard that America is going to disappear, you know, and I am talking about whether it's global warming, climate change, or our economy is just going to shrink and go away, or oh, we're going to have an atomic bomb. Now, that was the big worry when I was young. You know, Russia was going to bomb us, and we are going to bomb them, so hide under the desk, <laughs> which made no sense. America is not going to disappear. That's how you're going to make a lot of money. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278.
4: You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99Chart, 888 99Chart, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk.
1: 888 99Chart, everybody. Give me a call. Love to talk to you. We're live. And we're going to go to Mark in Morgan Hill. How are you doing, Mark? Morgan Hill, by the way, is in uh, California, up the coast a bit from me and down from. San Jose, down from Silicon Valley. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing
2: well. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, um, I had a question about closed-ended funds. Uh-huh. I discovered them about almost a year ago, and I went from investing a little bit to quite a bit, over 200000 now I'm in them, including munis. Um, okay. They're doing really, really well. They're not talked about very much in investment circles, no. and it's hard to get information. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on them. I, I realize there's risk involved, but uh, so far, so good for me. I just okay. want to know your thoughts.
1: Sure. A closed-in fund is neither good nor bad. It's a different type of investment. Okay. Everybody knows what a mutual fund is. Everybody knows what ETFs are. But closed-in funds have been around a lot longer than ETFs, exchange-traded funds. What's the difference is between a mutual fund, an ETF, and a closed-in fund? The closed-in fund has a finite number of shares. It's just, it can do anything that a mutual fund or ETF can do. Follow, a, follow a, uh, an index. It can buy and sell stocks. It can be a bond closed-in fund. But being that it has a finite number of shares, like a company, like a stock company, it can sell at higher than the net asset value of the fund's holdings. So, you know, an open-in fund, which is a mutual fund or an ETF, means it always sells at what is the value of the holdings it has. A closed-in fund can sell at a discount to the value or a premium to the value. So you can buy a closed-in fund... And you can pay more than what it's really worth. The holdings are worth less than what you have. Or you can buy it at a discount and the holdings can be more. So don't think that it's really at that different of an investment than all the others. Other than it can sell at a discount or a premium. Of course, you would like to buy it at a discount. Because you're getting the stuff that it's holding cheaper than the market value is. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having them. There's no, you know, there's no magic there. It's just that if you buy good closed in fund, you you get a good managed fund. There you go. You 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 get the assets that's in the fund. Okay. So don't you know they're fine, Mark. There's nothing wrong with them at all. Nothing wrong with them. But you do want to know if you're buying that at an, you know, is it trading now? As they done very well as you suggested, is it at a premium to what the holdings are? And maybe you want to, you know, sell some because it's at a premium. Okay.
3: Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions, so don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, eight 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 ninety nine chart.
2: Hi, it's Steve or Justin. My name's Eric and I've been listening to your show for about a year now and I've really learned a lot. I thank you for that. And I was wondering if sometime on the program you could talk a little bit about SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. I guess specifically what I'm wondering is how do these compare to like a traditional IPO as far as are they more risky, less risky? And I know you've talked in the past about not investing in an IPO until it's been out for at least six months for the insiders to kind of get out and prices to regulate or whatever. Do you have any kind of general guidelines for companies that become public through the SPAC? Thank you, and I'll listen for your answer.
5: Great question. Now, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. What it does is it raises capital, maybe a few billion dollars, and the idea is to Go out and buy another company, buy an actual company. The SPAC doesn't have initially any company in it. It's just a an asset uh, with cash, and then they use that cash to go make an acquisition. And oftentimes the price of that SPAC will pop dramatically. And this all has to do—it's financial engineering. They're Limiting the supply of shares that are out there, right? Because the owners of that SPAC, owners of the shares, typically are closely held. So when the supply of shares are very, very low and they go make an acquisition and he wants to buy into that acquisition, they're chasing after a very select few number of shares and that really explodes the value of that SPAC. So, you know, if you want to play that, that game, that the financial engineering game that a SPAC does, uh, then that's, that, that's fine, um, but it's also very risky. They might make a poor acquisition. They may not keep as many shares held to the best as they had hoped. Uh, there are a lot of risks to it, uh, but it's definitely not an investment vehicle. It's a speculative vehicle
0: only. InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial, InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.